talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is manning the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Inflation is at its highest point in over 30 years. My granddad used to say, when you don't care during the good times, you will suffer during the hard times. Here's Scott Thompson. Wow. How profound. Uh, it was last weekend we started talking about the issues that Sunwing was having and trying to get its uh, its travelers on board planes and uh, up in the sky and such. Uh, obviously, automated uh, reservation systems and a hack of some sort happened uh, way back, uh, I think it was on Sunday. And still, the airline is grappling with ongoing issues caused by this data breach. To talk more about all of this, Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International. He is is a uh, airlines um, <laughs> he's an airlines expert and is with us now Keith, thanks for the time i hope you're well well good afternoon scott and the same to you, you i hope you are are you surprised keith that this is still an ongoing issue that they haven't been able to to get the reservation systems up and running yet well it would appear that there's no backup system in place yes it is surprising i would expect that there would be a backup system and this is, uh, I think, uh, a very serious situation as far as the economics for the airline are concerned. Because when they delay flights, they're subject to fines. They're subject to putting people up in hotels overnight. They've got a lot of unhappy passengers. And that's going to take quite a bit to recover from this. Obviously, it was a third-party uh, company that was running their uh, that runs their uh, reservation system. Is the backup their responsibility, or is the backup the airline's responsibility? Well, I'm. I've been around long enough to remember when we ran the system without computers, and it was done with paper. Mm-hmm. You'd hang a chart of the airplane up. You could see the every seat. A passenger would come up and I said, well, what seat do you want, sir? And he says, oh, let's see, I'll take 9D. <laughs> and you tear the ticket off, paste it on his boarding pass. He'd walk out to the airplane, get on board, and that would be it. Yeah. So it was a, a paper-based system. And now we've gotten so far away from that that it's very difficult for folks to revert back to what's what once worked. And are there other airlines that are using third-party systems, the same as what Sunwing is? Yeah, a lot of airlines use third-party systems uh, to do this. It's not unusual. I'm just puzzled that whoever was responsible for this did not have a backup system in place. This seems to be the the, the root of the problem right now, but it's, it's compounding. For example, crews have duty times. So you come to work at 8 o'clock for a flight that's supposed to leave at 9, but the airplane hasn't arrived, and you don't leave till 12, well, that clock's been running on your duty time. And now you get down in the Caribbean somewhere, maybe you're out of duty time, and you can't return home as you were scheduled. And there's no other crew there to take the flight home. So now the flight gets delayed until you have what we call legal time remaining to be able to continue the flight. And uh, this, of course, compounds on itself as well. So it's, it's not a good situation. What about the way Sunwing has handled this? Uh, many were saying that the first few days there, there was radio silence there, and then eventually uh, a Sunwing official came out, but then again seemed to throw the third-party uh, reservations company under the bus. Well, I think that's probably the only choice he had. Uh, since we don't know exactly what happened, the, the allegation is that their system was hacked. I'm not certain what benefit that it would have to a hacker, but uh, assuming that's the case, I would assume that whoever got hacked had a parallel system, parallel database that they could uh, certainly recover in less than four days to get the thing back up and running again. Are other are, are other airlines learning from this, Keith? Are they checking these systems to make sure they don't fall victim to the same thing? 
I'm sure that they are. I'm sure that most of them are pretty confident that their systems would survive an interruption like this. I, I think that uh, certainly Sunwing has learned a, a big lesson here. And with all the potential fines and expenses, it's going to be very difficult for them to recover financially, I think. And obviously, this is the res- reservation system that gets people on and uh, on the planes and sh- and such. Does this is does this have anything to do with the operation of the aircraft itself, or anything to do with the safety concerns of the aircraft itself, or is this a, tep- a separate issue? Well, I would assume that the system does several other things. One of the things that it would have to do is notify the other country of destination of the manifest of passengers before the flight takes off so that if that country such as the u.s had a restriction on some of these passengers they could be spotted and not be allowed to uh, board the airplane Hmm. additionally the uh, uh, manifest would be used to calculate the weight and balance for the airplane to make sure that it wasn't overloaded that everything was fine as far as uh, that was concerned for takeoffs and landings and it would back right into the reservation systems. Everything generally is pretty well tied together. And when you have one thing fall down, the rest of it soon follows. How are other airlines helping out Sunwing here? What can they do? Well, the problem is this is peak season. And Mm. let's just say we have a flight from Toronto to uh, Montego Bay. And perhaps uh, another airline has the same flight but on their return flight, they have a few extra seats. They could certainly let Sunwing uh, use those seats to fill their airplane up. They'd make more money. They have a full airplane. It would accommodate a few of Sunwing's passengers, but certainly not all of them. So they can help out in that way. But there again, it's very dependent on capacity. And in view of what's happening right now, it looks like everyone is sold out too and perhaps over capacity so Hmm. just having sufficient seats for an airline's own passengers can be a big problem where they don't have enough surplus to offer other airlines customers and we've certainly heard of those challenges coming out of this uh, pandemic as well and now you have this on top of it any idea when sunwing will be back to normal well no another issue that they're probably having uh uh, problems with is, is crew staffing uh, airlines generally are understaffed because of the, uh, the pandemic and because of what's happened there. So they're probably running out of crews in addition to running out of airplanes and duty time and all this sort of thing. So uh, these are problems that any airline would face under a situation such as this. And until they get a, a parallel system or a backup system in place, I think this is just going to continue. Wow. Keith Mackey with us. Mackey International. Sunwing still grappling with its ongoing data breach problems, trying to get people uh, reserved and onto planes. Keith, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. Whatever sort of surgery, uh, it was an issue before a global pandemic. And yet all we do is puff our chest out and brag about how great our Canadian healthcare system is. Uh, and then we go through a global pandemic and realize just how full of holes it actually is as we hear our healthcare workers screaming for help long before the pandemic and certainly after that we need to do something about the funding formula to get this system fixed. And, you know, uh, there was lots of chatter about this during the, uh, during the uh, global pandemic. Uh, however, now it seems to have fallen by the wayside, and it doesn't seem to be a priority, perhaps distracted by pharmacare, dental care, which, you know, I mean, my goodness, if we can get, if, if we can't get the one system right, what is adding more to it going to, uh, to do? And, and there's a, obviously with surgeries, uh, being backlogged, uh, due to the global pandemic. And we remember this prior to it. Some people, uh, medical, uh, tourism were heading to other countries to get their surgeries done. Well, now the surgery backlog exacerbated by COVID-19 has increased that. So more and more Canadians are flying somewhere else to get their procedures done without the weight that there is with the great system that we're supposed to have here in Canada. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Jamie Marocker, digital broadcast journalist, 
Angeles with Global News. The new piece at globalnews.ca is Living in Pain, Canadians Travel Across the World to Avoid Surgery Backlog. Jamie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for having me on. So this was obviously an issue prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, wait times and such, hallway medicine. We've been talking about it for years, for decades, it seems. Uh, now you complicate things with a global pandemic and surgeries being backlogged uh, that weren't as uh, important, some that even were. Uh, when did we start noticing that, that there was a rush to head post-pandemic down to other parts of or uh, two other parts of the world to get surgery? Well, I mean, since about 2017, so even pre-pandemic, those numbers um, of people leaving the country to get procedures uh, elsewhere were starting to grow. And this this Mm. whole kind of thing is called medical tourism. And so the women that I spoke with, um, they were told that their wait times on average to get hip replacements in Canada would be around 15 months. And they were in severe pain. They didn't want to um, wait that long. So um, they made the move. They booked flights to Lithuania, where um, they both got treatment. One paid around $14,000 for their flight uh, rehabilitation and surgery. The other one paid around $16,000 Canadian, which is, you know, quite a lot of money. But they're glad they did it because one of the women is still actually on a wait list here in Canada. And it's been three years and a surgery Hmm. still hasn't been scheduled. So imagine living in severe pain for three years. Well, and we all know what it's like just living with this pandemic for two years. You can imagine if you're going through something like this as well. Why Lithuania? Most would think they would travel to the U.S. It's closer. Why Lithuania? Yeah, so there are other alternatives, you know, um, different areas of the world where it's a little bit more cost effective. Um, Interestingly, the Medical Tourist uh, Tourism Association actually listed Canada as the number one location for surgical destinations. Um, and people are leaving the country. So we, so we have, you know, these amazing private clinics here. We have the experienced, uh, physicians here, but it's really pricey. So that $15,000 surgery would be more like $30,000 if you were to stay in the country. So you're really shelling out then. And for people who can't afford any of that, they're left to wait on the universal healthcare system. And now we're not talking about months anymore. We are talking about year, um, a year plus. Or, or perhaps years in, in this one woman case, if you watch my story this evening, uh, yeah, three years. Is there any reimbursement to them whatsoever from Canadian Medicare oh. at all? I'm guessing no. No, no. It's out of pocket. Yeah. It's really, really difficult. You'd be hard pressed. Um, in my story, which will air tomorrow, we'll talk a little bit more about um, are there any solutions to this major problem that pretty much every province is facing? Where are the provinces with their solutions? Um, but I spoke to a woman for that story who just came back from the U.S. and she spent a lot of money, um, closer to $30,000 American just to get a surgery because she was told it would be two to three years. Um, and she just couldn't live like that anymore. And, um, she told me that she probably won't see any of that money back. And that's pretty much the case for most people. Uh, you talked about healthcare being a provincial jurisdiction, uh, but as you mentioned, all of the provinces' premiers got together under uh, Premier Horgan, I believe it was in BC, saying that hey, we need to rejig this fu- a funding formula. And and this was all the chatter when the healthcare workers, the poor healthcare workers, were screaming during the height of this pandemic. But it, 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 are we even having this this discussion now, or are we just oh everything's fine, let's cool. just move on? Yeah, no, this is a battle between the provinces and the federal government now at this point, right? You're talking about the Canadian health transfer. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the feds are saying that, you know, we put forward $4 billion last year, another $2 billion this year, but that's shy of the $6 billion that they promised in one year alone. Um, And that's also for the pandemic as well. Yes, exactly. And provinces, by and large, are saying, like, this is not enough money. So the buck's being passed between the provinces and the federal government, and then it's even being passed between the regions. So I reached out to every province and territory. The majority of them told me that um, they were, you know, consulting different um, surgical task force. They were consulting the regions, and it was up to them. So now you're really getting down to the nitty-gritty, and you're, you know, who who's leading the pack here? Should it be a federal responsibility? It's kind of the question. Should there be some leadership behind this? Um, above the provincial level, and maybe a little bit of guidance. We'll talk a little bit about that in my story again tomorrow. But um, a lot of the frontline workers, the surgeons, the physicians, the nurses, 
What they want to see at this point, because all the provincial solutions and the federal solutions are going to take a lot of time, they Mm. want to see the hospitals step up and make changes at a hospital level because that's the only way that things are going to get moving right now. Everything else, you know, policy, politics, takes forever. How would they do this at the hospital level, Jamie? So the, I really dive into it again tomorrow in my story, but I'll give you a little insight. Um, sort of the plan would be to centralize things. Um, say you have a, a doctor that's referring to a surgeon, and they all refer to this one surgeon because they either know them or they think that they're the best. Um, well, you know, surgeon B doesn't have as many on their wait list. So in terms of centralization, what mm. they're hoping to see is that every surgeon would get kind of the same amount of patients and would be able to move through their waiting list faster. It seems we're more interested in planning pharmacare and dental care than we are fixing Medicare. I know, and this is a thing, you know, when we say elective surgeries, we're not talking about, you know, small things. We're talking about things that impact people's lives. We're even talking about cancer treatments. And in the story that airs tonight, I, I spoke with a woman, or a physician in Toronto, who said she's diagnosed more advanced cancer in the emergency room than she ever has in her entire career. And that really says something. Hmm. Jamie Marocker with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News uh, tonight for more on all of this. The surgery backlog, uh, obviously exacerbated by COVID, is steering some out of the country. Jamie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Man, it's unbelievable. Queen Elizabeth celebrating her 96th birthday today. Uh, incredible uh, to, to, to think this woman has uh, outlived a lot of the leaders that were around her uh, during her reign. Also, Prince ha- uh, Harry has given a new interview talking about his visit with the Queen. And also an Angus Reid poll shows Canadians like the Queen, but... Uh, are more and more interested in severing ties with the British monarchy. Let's talk to Patricia Treble, founder of Right Royalty, royal contributor to Maclean's, and with us now. Patricia, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, good afternoon, Scott. I am well. It's a, it's a beautiful spring day, and I'm going to say spring because there's no snow on the ground again. <laughs> we'll take that. Absolutely. So how is the Queen celebrating the, her 96th? She's celebrating it really quietly. She actually, um, she's been really based in at Windsor Castle for most of the pandemic. Um, but she flew by helicopter not that, uh, just a few days ago, up to her estate in Sandringham in Norfolk, uh, farming country. Um, and she's staying at a small uh, farmhouse. It's called Wood Farm. Uh, small to her, large to us. Like, let's mm. put everything in perspective. And that's really where, when um, Prince Philip retired, um, he spent a lot of time up there. And that's where she goes uh, quite often. And so she's spending it very, very quietly um, in Sandringham. And what about the rest of the family? How are they? W- would they see her at all today? Um, some of the family might, but I mean, we, we just saw some some images that somebody took of um, Kate in London with two of the kids. Um, we know, of course, Harry is at the Invictus Games in uh, the Netherlands. And the others are, you know, are out and about. Um I'm going to be honest, let's face it, as anyone who's ever had you know, a, re- a relation who starts hitting up in the in the numbers, uh, birthdays take on less of a meaning. And I mean, Harry even alluded to it. Um, you know, I mean, they really do. Um, and I think what she's basically doing is she's just basically trying to gain her strength because she's got the Platinum Jubilee coming. And those are the big events. And her, she remember, she's the queen. She gets two birthdays. She has her her real birthday, which is today mm-hmm. and her official birthday, which is in June when there's better weather. Uh, so let's go back to the interview uh, with Harry and the latest that he has been saying and in and, and his relationship with the Queen. Yeah, and, and this was interesting because this was uh, Hoda Kotb of uh, the Today Show NBC. And so she flew out to the Netherlands for this interview. And and I was watching it. And, and what was fascinating was that it was about 11 minutes long. And 80% of it was on Harry and his family rather than the Invictus Games. Hmm. Um, which I, I think is part of the part of the issue, right? I mean, everyone wants to talk to Harry about his family, about the Queen, about yeah. his relations with the rest of the family, about his wife, about the kids. Um, even though he's, you know, he and his wife have all these these projects that are trying to get off the ground. What people really want to talk about is is his relationship. And he said, you know, they stopped in at Windsor Castle um, on their way to the Invictus Games. He and Meghan, and they saw the Queen. They had tea with the Queen, and that was 
basically it. And they did see, he did see his father, Charles. Um, and because apparently relations are, are quite tense between them. Um, he has, of course, Harry has a memoir coming out in the fall. And all accounts are that it's going to be Charles and Camilla who are just going to be take a pasting in it. Hmm. And what about his relationship with his brother, Harry's relationship with his brother? So he dodged that question because um, Hodokopi asked very specifically about his relationship with his father and brother, and he dodged it completely. He just he started talking about the Invictus game uh, participants who are all um, uh, troops who have been injured uh, mm-hmm. on the battlefield mm-hmm. and dodged it completely. And the assumption is, is that um, the relationship is, is not good. Um, he did not meet uh, William when he was in when he was uh, visiting the queen. Um, and so time will tell. I mean, the, the, the reports are that he has been invited by the queen to attend the platinum Jubilee celebrations, which are coming up in, as I said, in June. Um, but as a member of her family, not as a working Royal. So he doesn't get, you know, pride of place, you know, he'll be on the balcony, but not necessarily right beside the queen. Um, so it remains to be seen whether, you know, he's going to be there, whether Megan will be there, whether his their kids will be there, and what sort of interaction he'll have with his family. Yeah, uh, no matter what the position is on the balcony, it will seem quite crowded, it appears. <laughs> I, I think positioning is going to be everything. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I'm actually quite hopeful. I hope the Queen very much wants this. I mean, this, you know, he is, he is one of her grandchildren. Um, she clearly adores him. He clearly adores her. Um, the, apparently they, they talk over, you know, Zoom or however they do it, um, you know, quite frequently, which is one of the, the blessings I'm going to say of this pandemic. If there's been anything, it's the fact that, you know, we've been able to actually interact with a lot mm-hmm. of our relations and our friends in a way we didn't before. Um, but she, I think she really wants him there for the, for the, the Platinum Jubilee, because let's face it, at 96, you want to make every event becomes important. Every event becomes a must attend. And I think that's kind of what the thinking is for this. Patricia Treble with us, founder of Right Royalty, royal contributor to McLean's, talking about the Queen's 96th birthday today and everything else royal. Patricia, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. <laughs> Thank you. Same to you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I don't know what it is. I've been on the planet. I'm in a guy in my late 50s, and um, uh, this seems to be one of the most depressing and negative times I can remember in the last 50 or so years. And it's not like we haven't faced adversity or struggles or what have you in, you know, with humankind over the years, but it seems now everything is negative. Uh, the world is coming to an end. Uh, climate change, COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. And I remember, you know, talking about this in the 1970s. But I think there was a little bit more optimism than there seems to be now. Why are we so fascinated with scaring the hell out of each other? Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto. He's with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you. Always great to be with you, Scott. So I mentioned, Steve, like climate change, Ukraine, COVID-19, like the world. I don't know how many times I've heard the world is coming to an end. Why are we so obsessed with this? Um, it, we are hardwired to be obsessed with, with things like that. We actually have a part of our brain called the amygdala. It's the closest thing we know to Peter Parker's spider sense. Literally, mm. every bit of input that comes into our body flows through this structure, and this structure is just looking for threats. And if there's any threats, uh, potentially, and this can be just minor threats like social embarrassment, or it can be major existential threats like self you know mutual self-determined what's it called when we go crazy with the nukes and start firing nukes at each other uh and so this part of the brain is always looking for dangers and then when it detects it putting us into this what we call fight or flee mode which we commonly think of as chronic anxiety have leaders fed into this well i mean it's, it's, it is a negative time and, and we live in a time where if anything is negative happening anywhere in the world, you know, we tend to learn about it, but we really have these global, like, you know, climate change is a global issue. Pandemic was a global issue. I don't think we've ever seen the entire world 
um, together it's at such a time surrounded by so many threats. Um, I do sometimes think the political aspects can kind of get away. We could talk about that with the pandemic and stuff. Um, but it's, it's awful hard in our world of CNN and, and continual news coverage to not become aware of these scary things and to not have them affect us. Uh, there's always been threats in the world, though, and many will say life's the best it's ever been. We're living longer. We have medical breakthroughs. It's the best it's ever been for for humankind. Haven't there always been those threats? Has there not always been hard times? I mean, certainly, uh, if, if you one of the funny things to do sometimes is to, to listen to music. And certainly in the 60s, you know, um, mm. there was um, the Eastern world. It is exploding. Um, yeah. There's a lots of music you can find at various epochs in time where people are looking at the world and saying, we're going to hell in a handbasket, as you said. But it feels it does feel different. Uh, I remember being on TVO a while ago talking about existential threats. And then it was climate change. And there was some issues between Trump and um, uh, Iran and whether nuclear uh, whether missiles might send around. And that seemed like a really existential thing at the time. We've since added the pandemic and Putin to the mix. And, you know, all three of those, I don't know if we've ever had a trifecta of that sort um, where, you know, everywhere you look, there is a there is a threat. So, you know, I agree. This has been the biggest mental health challenge, I think, that we have faced as a, as a species, um, certainly in my lifetime. And it sounds like our lifetimes are about similar in length. Do we do we uh, have we forgotten that we seem to get through these? There's been tough times and and humankind gets together and we get through this. There's always been struggles. There's and you are you bring up a very valid point that this is very much a global thing now. Um, but there's always been struggles in life. How do we how do we hang on to hope here? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was thinking of that a lot through the beginning of the pandemic. My parents were in Holland during the Nazi occupation, there and you go. they would tell stories about you know things they experienced and, and such. And, but just as you said, you know, they got through that time. They were not horribly scarred for the rest of their lives. They they did have a propensity to eat canned food or food that maybe you and I wouldn't eat anymore because they'd <laughs> been through a period where food was scarce. Um, but yeah, we do tend to get through them. Uh, you know, some of these things like climate change doesn't seem to have an other side so so that one's sort of a little spooky but certainly the pandemic we will get through this uh, and we will be on the other side of it and we may actually learn some lessons and become stronger for it um, I've certainly seen that with my parents where they had a deep appreciation for very simple things because mm. they were things that they could not have access to um, during the war and I think we've all gained a deeper appreciation of say the relationships in our lives you know the people we weren't able to go out and hang around with during the pandemic and we started to realize that's a really important part of my life I really want to get back there uh, and when we do I mean I had my first band practice a while ago with the, with mm. the people I play with and it was heaven <laughs> I mean I've appreciated it like never before I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that I think it has helped people prioritize what is really important in life do you see the, the cloud of negativity lifting, do you see a positive time? What do we have to do to find that positivity? Yeah, well, well, A, I think we need to find that positivity. So if, if we're continually sort of marinating in negative thoughts, mm. um, that produces chronic stress and that actually will wear down our immune system and, and leave us completely burnt out. So we have to find ways to escape. There are, you know, I highly encourage people find what makes you happy as you go through life things make you happy or make the people around you happy and when you can identify what those things are start to use them in a, in a really intentional way like if laughter makes you happy and it makes everybody you know everyone feels good when they laugh but what makes you laugh if it's just for laughs if it's watching that show pvr that show and when you're feeling down throw that on and use it like medicine and, and have a little laughter break and let this stuff kind of go away it's really important because then our body gets flooded with positive hormones that counteract the cortisol and adrenaline that stress keeps dumping into our body so i think this is a good time for us all to learn those strategies i created a course at the beginning of this pandemic um, it's available on coursera.org if anybody wants to check it's free um, and it's a course that kind of gives you some strategies for getting a break because we need a break every now and then. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, uh, getting through a pandemic, getting through world uh, climate change and world conflict and coming out the other side with a smile. Steve, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. 
You too, Scott. Thank you. Uh, in case you weren't aware, and I'm, I'm really surprised that this is getting the attention that it is, considering uh, the conservatives, federal conservatives don't choose a new leader until September. But there certainly is lots of interest in those that are running, especially the top two candidates. And we have one with us right now. Uh, Jean Charest is with us, and uh, he is promising that in, in, as a result of uh, running for the leadership. If elected, he will change the Canada Health Act to allow provinces greater flexibility in health care delivery and say, it's about strength of the single-payer system, also framing the policy change as protecting Canada from future lockdowns by building capacity. You know, during this pandemic, we talked an awful lot about the funding formula for health care, and now as we're slowly getting out of this, it seems to have been, um, there's a distraction with other things, whether it is pharmacare, dental care, or what have you. Jean Charest is with us, candidate for the federal conservative leadership race. He's with us now. Jean, thank you very much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well, Scott, and I'm delighted to be on with you. So, as I mentioned with healthcare, and we, you know, we've been hearing uh, healthcare workers screaming about this for decades. Uh, the feds used to pay half of the healthcare cost. Uh, the provinces, the rest, that's down to around twenty percent now, twenty two percent. It seems that the feds are always quick to push this off to the provinces, and we know that healthcare is a provincial uh, responsibility. But it's been obvious yep. during this crisis that all of the provinces are in the same position. They've all been banding together and asking for a change. What can you do to 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 help alleviate the funding formula, the situation we have with the provinces? Well, and the federal government transfers money to the provinces through the Canada Health Care Health Act, which establishes conditions. And the conditions are quite strict, uh, Scott. I mean, there, there is a single payer, and, and in the changes I'm proposing, that would remain. So anyone listening to us should know, you're not going to put your hand in your pocket or have to get a credit card out for health care. That remains exactly the same. But among the conditions is the delivery of healthcare, And what I would do is something that has never been done before. I would open up and, and, and legislate a new Canada Health Act in which I would allow and encourage it, the provinces to innovate and to experiment with new ways of delivering health care. And that has been sort of a sacred cow in the past. No one wanted to touch that. But coming out of COVID, we now know that running our health care system at capacity does not allow us to care for the people who are sick. And even before COVID, Scott, our healthcare system is not doing well. I mean, we're mm-hmm. if you look at any of the parameters, we're among the worst in the world. So what I would do is encourage provinces to experiment with private uh, sector uh, delivery of healthcare, and, uh, which would free up places in hospitals. It would allow us to be more efficient. It would allow us to uh, be more rapid and control costs. And I'll give you an example. We could very well encourage a situation or have an agreement between a province and doctors who do hip and knee replacements. And they sign a contract where they do a thousand of them a year. And they take on patients from diagnostic to operation to post-operation care to rehab. And they are committed to bringing them to the point where they are uh, fully uh, operated on and dealt with. And they pay X amount a year. They could run a clinic that would be very efficient, specialized, could deliver services more rapidly, and then free up beds in hospitals for people who have acute care problems. That's the kind of approach that I think we could very well have in the country. You know, as soon as you mention uh, partnerships with private, people get their back up. Uh, they, for some reason, we have so much pride in our healthcare system, even though we found it fail mi- miserably during the pandemic. Um, how do you balance that? How do you how do you convince Canadians that this is what's needed? That it's not just federal money, provincial money. We need certain private money funding as well. Well, I, I think we we are at a point where we're coming out of COVID, and we now know our healthcare system's broken. And, and, and by the way, I feel uh, very uh, strongly about the people who work in that healthcare system, who are the real heroes of this COVID episode in our lives. But we deserve better and for what we're paying. We remember, Scott, we're among one of the countries, developed countries in the world that is paying the most for healthcare. I mean, it's about 12% of our gross domestic par- product, close to. There was a study done by a think tank recently that put us among the most, the, you know, the worst performers among, I think, 11 countries. So the system's broken. Now is the time for change, good change, reasonable change that will allow us to be more efficient. And if we allow the provinces, we untie their hands, allow them to be more innovative, to experiment with different ways of delivering health care, 
we're going to get better outcomes and Canadians will get better health care because delays will be cut, costs will be contained, and, uh, and they will be able to be taken care of more rapidly than if we stay with the system we have now. It seems we've forgotten what our healthcare workers have been saying during the early stages of this pandemic and instead are distracted by things like pharmacare care and dental care, which are, you know, who, yeah. who, who can argue with that? But why are we why are we building new systems when the one that we're pattering it pattering it after is so full of holes? I mean, this, you know, again, I was talking to the Canadian uh, head of the Canadian Dental Association, and they're all for getting as much care into people's mouths as they can. But they said the provinces are really equipped to do this, but they need the money to actually implement the programs are we getting distracted here we are and the problem we have here is that the federal government is trying to do the job of the provinces and that's you know that's been the liberal approach to intervene in areas of provincial jurisdiction the federal government should transfer the money it should do it in a way that allows the provinces to innovate to experiment to have all the freedom in the world to be able to look at how more efficiently to deliver health care and for for Canadians. That's what the way we should do it. But the federal government, it, it's wrong for the federal government to try to direct provinces on how to run their health care systems. That's the worst thing that we could do. And, uh, and the problem we have now in Canada is that the federal government's been all about spending. And we need, pro, pro, you know, we need policies that promote economic growth, Scott. And we, don't, we haven't had that in seven years. And we need it in, in the near future. On healthcare, one of the things, by the way, that I would do is a major initiative to recognize qualifications of healthcare workers throughout all of Canada. It is easier for a nurse from France to come to Canada and work than it is from a nurse from Montreal to go to Hamilton. I mean, to have qualifications recognized. And I would do the same for immigrants that come in. We're wasting time and energy requalifying and retraining people who come into the country. And in fact, they are already qualified. Those are the common sense things that we need to do to make this healthcare system work more efficiently. Jean Charest with us, candidate for the federal conservative leadership race, talking about healthcare. Jean, thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much, Scott. I look forward to being in Hamilton soon. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's uh, give you a bit of an update here on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Putin has claimed that Russia is victorious in the Battle of Mariupol. And after sealing away resistance fighters and civilians who were held up inside a steel, steel mill, he has decided now uh, not to bomb this. Uh, that being said, uh, what is the plan moving forward? Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. We're hearing that uh, uh, the other day, uh, Joe Biden sending more to Ukraine, uh, certainly more heavy artillery and such. I guess my first question, Reggie, is, and you know, Canada's doing the same, but why not do this on day five instead of day 59? Uh, I mean, you know, that's the, that's a question for the administration. They feel that the way that they've been carrying themselves uh, as a kind of leader of the pack from the beginning uh, has been according to plan. Uh, and this is not the first shipment uh, of weapons that have been coming out. This is uh, several packages in. Uh, and and as of today, this $800 million uh, additional weapons package that's leaving for Ukraine shortly brings the U.S. total alone to more than $3 billion uh, in aid. So it might not have happened uh, right off the top, but ultimately, uh, you know, the weapons are getting there uh, and they are needed by the Ukrainian army and uh, and by the Ukrainian government who, who continuously keep asking countries for more weapons. Uh, by the way, we're on day 57. Um, so all of this stuff coming in the back door, we're seeing what's happening with Mariupol. Is, is, is this too late? Is there, can they, can they hold them off? I mean, look, Mariupol is is in ruins. More than 90% uh, of the city uh, has been destroyed. Uh, and the Russian troops have, have encircled both the people that are left in this city and those last holdouts of the Ukrainian military that are inside the steel plant. Uh, and we've heard, again, as you mentioned, that Vladimir Putin has no intention of going forward with an attack on the compound. It is simply just a massive compound, uh, and it would take uh, an exorbitant amount of force to try and, and get through and find everyone in there. Uh, but ultimately, you know, this is a president uh, who is inside Mariupol claiming victory. The Ru- the Ukrainians are saying, look, it, it might not be fully in Russian control yet, but the West can simply just sit back uh, and watch because there is very little that they can do other than continue to provide support. 
Uh, what about Kiev? Is there any more chatter about them trying to Russia trying to go and retake it? So, I mean, look, at the end of the day, Russia is trying to, uh, in their eyes, carry out this military operation in order to protect Russian interests that exists in the eastern part of the country. But there are still rumblings that uh, both Vladimir Putin and those that are around him uh, are still looking for regime change. They've obviously been met with fierce resistance, probably more resistance than what they had originally anticipated. Uh, and, and, you know, it's unclear what the ultimate goal is going to be here, however long this war goes out. But we have seen uh, this kind of valiant effort from the president of Ukraine uh, without intention to bow down to whatever Russia wants. Um, we are certainly hearing that uh, more Canadians have been banned or Canadians have been banned from Russia. I'm sure they're doing the same thing with the United States. Uh, is this just tit for tat? Is there any significance to this? Of course it is. It's retaliation for uh, the fact that Russia's economy has been cratered uh, and and is having a difficult time moving forward. And they're continuously at risk of defaulting uh, on their debts. That list of more than 60 Canadians that came out today that include, uh, you know, Toronto Mayor John Tory and the mayor of Ottawa and Premier Doug Ford is, uh, you know, in tandem with the U.S. list that came out shortly before that, that includes names uh, like Vice President Kamala Harris, the second gentleman, people like Mark Zuckerberg and the, the, the spokespeople for the State Department and for the Pentagon. This is simply just a way to try and show uh, that Moscow has some kind of might left in it. But ultimately what this does is stop travel between Canada and the U.S., and Russia, to which there's very little way of accessing Russia because the planes have been cut off from being able to fly there. So this is this is a way to show the 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 Russian people that their leadership is doing what it can to try and you know stamp down what it sees in uh, invasive and aggressive Western behavior. Uh, Putin taking if Putin takes the eastern part of the country, the Donbass region and such, and and continues on with this, is that enough for him to convince? Uh, those in Russia that this is a victory, this is a win? I mean, look, he doesn't even need to go all the way down to uh, the port city of Odessa uh, to, to claim this as a victory. We already have seen the president, President Putin, hand out medals of valor to uh, to members of his military who carried out the massacre in Bucha. Uh, and they have already claimed victory in cities that, that are not in the hands of Russia. They are claiming that their actions in uh, Ukraine right now are a success because they are backed by these rebel-backed regions uh, in eastern Ukraine through the Donbass, and that's the propaganda that's being pushed back to uh, to the to the average Russian person. The president of Russia is saying, "Look, we are doing a, a great job in this operation." Uh, and there's very little that the people of Russia can do to push back on that because they either don't get the information or they simply just buy it. Hmm. Reggie Zucchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. In case you haven't noticed, things have gotten a lot more expensive uh, coming out of this uh, pandemic. And, of course, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, supply chain shortages, and uh, probably not really good fiscal policy before we started a global pandemic. Carson Jarema has a interesting article in the National Post, uh, comment editor for the National Post, and it is entitled Inflation and the Official Liberal Plan to Make Life More Expensive. Carson is with us now. Carson, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. It appears that Canadians are now starting to notice this. They're starting to feel the pinch. They're starting to feel the sting of uh, rising prices and inflation. But it doesn't seem for, uh, to tarnish their image of uh, the federal government or our prime minister. Is this resonating with Canadians? Is this a top priority for Canadians? Well, I think, yes. I mean, obviously, things are, people will notice that things are more expensive, filling up your gas tank. Um, you know, for me, you know, we, we just take $40 to fill up a, t- a tank. Now it's $60 to fill up the tank. Um, so hey, grocery bills are higher. So people will generally notice that. Um, I don't know that people will always recognize what the, what the causes of um, increasing prices. And, of course, there's a lot of different reasons why um, prices are increasing. But generally, you know, prices are increasing because... People want to buy more things than there are available to buy them. There is not enough supply of foods, of computer components that people want. And some of this has been, you know, uh, some of this was caused by a pandemic uh, in the sense, you know, if you shut down all the industry 
Um, and but people still have demands for those things. Like you still want to buy things. You still want to. You know, prices are going to go up. Um, I don't know that people will necessarily see the the result of you know see the the the, the reaction from government policy to things becoming more expensive. Um, one of the ways that governments can make things more expensive is just by putting a bunch of money into the spending a bunch of money, um, giving money more, putting more money to, in people's pockets, which gives them the ability to buy more things, which can, um, uh, if there's not the things that they want to buy, then it becomes more expensive. Um, the typical way that some people, um, who like the liberals might want to control costs is they say, well, we'll buy things for you. We'll buy your daycare. We'll buy your dental care. Or some ideas that get floated around is like, oh, we want to control the price of gas. Um, but those things will only make it worse, tonight, I think. Do Canadians want handouts or do they just want the ability to make their own money? I mean, it seems that, you know, okay, we'll pay for this, we'll pay for that, we'll pay for whatever. Uh, is that what Canadians are looking for or do they just want a future and a job where they can buy their own things and have them available at a reasonable price? I think if you were to ask somebody if the option was, uh, do you want all these like nice social programs, um, or do you want a fulfilling, high-paying job that gives you the ability to progress through a career? I think most people would want the latter. I mean, sometimes people might want might say they want both, but I think having um, the ability to uh, have a, a satisfying career that allows you to raise a family and sort of get ahead in the world is what they would want. Um, we, where we disagree is, you know, how, what's the best way to get there? And the policies that the liberals bring in, um, at best, don't accomplish that. At worst, they they get in the way of of you know. Uh, people's abilities to to get ahead you know especially if you start making it harder to invest by discouraging oil and gas investment for example we seem to be more interested in social issues like those do get our attention i mean handgun bans climate change you know pharmacare dental care um those are something those are things that we would all i guess love on a wish list but it seems we're we're, we're focusing on those as opposed to good jobs uh, affordability uh the ability to buy a house uh inflation health care things that are really kitchen table issues yeah, absolutely. I think that when the the government talks about getting people ahead and making life more affordable, they're not actually talking about they don't actually talk about things that are going to make <laughs> get you ahead and make you more affordable, which are jobs. They talk about things that the government is going to do for you, not ways that you are going to be able to do things for yourself. Um, mm, it's almost like the it's almost like we're going to give you fish instead of teaching you how to fish. And I think that's part of the idea is that every, everybody needs the government's help, and the, and the government's here. The government is here to help, and the government is is expanding into all sorts of different areas. Um, you know, really like things that used didn't used to be part of uh, government decisions are now going to become a part of government decisions, right? You know, you're not going to be eventually you're not going to buy a car unless it's an electric car. Um, they're going to tr- they're trying to tell companies well how they should invest in order for, for green policies, like decisions that were very much private before are, are slowly becoming increasingly decisions being made by the government for us, for our, our companies and so on. Do you get the feeling Canadians are looking for change? I've asked uh, political pundits this with just the interest in who the new federal leader is of the Conservative Party, and man, it's like five months away, and we seem to be interested in it now. Do you think people are looking for difference, a different uh, government, a change? I think that there's a significant portion of people out there that are looking for change. I think that there's um, there's obvious popularity and enthusiasm and energy behind Pierre Polyev's uh, campaign. You know, rallies are pulling in hundreds. You know, sometimes upwards of a thousand people. Uh, and I think there are people that are excited about the possibility of someone that's going to offer that appears to offer something genuinely different than what's there. And I think um, if you look at you know. So I and I think that if you can flip that, you know, if you were to have an election, although we probably won't have an election for a couple of years, but if you were to have an election, the conservatives do a good job of winning the the popular vote, but they need to win it yeah. by a little bit more in order to actually form government. Um, and I think that there are, you know, there's still a sizable amount of people that are 
that are happy with what what's being offered, you know, between the Liberals and the NDP. But the number of people who want genuine change does appear to be gro- growing. And it's not just much that they want change, it's how enthusiastic they are. And right now, there's some people that are very, very enthusiastic, it seems. Carson Jarama with us, comment editor with the National Post. Uh, his latest inflation and the official Liberal plan to make life more expensive as uh, we see record interest rates in, uh, in this, well, re- record inflation rates, uh, highest in 30 years and such. Carson, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Jason Farr has been a councillor Ward 2 for a few years now. I believe it's 12 for the city of Hamilton and now has announced he is running for the Ontario Liberal Party, Hamilton East Stony Creek, in the next election, making the jump uh, from, uh, per, or sorry, uh, uh, um, <laughs> from city politics, municipal politics, to provincial politics, and who knows, maybe even PM one day. Uh, Jason Farr is with us now. Jason, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, PM one day. Wow. Uh, <laughs> now you threw me to open. Uh, I'm well. How are you, Scott? I'm doing good. And first of all, congratulations on making this decision. I know it's a, it must be a difficult one to, to jump uh, in even deeper. So uh, congratulations for that. Uh, why the change in direction? Uh, well, why not? You know what I was thinking? I, I knew you were going to ask that question, and certainly it's been asked a lot over the course of the last, I'd say, seven days or so. And I, I think of my radio career, you know, when when we both started out, I'm sure you did overnights before you got that uh, popular rock radio morning show and ultimately uh, <laughs> the show you have now. And so that's life, right? It's an evolution. And if you feel strongly about something, if you're confident about your career and what you're doing, uh, most people, you know, are... are wanting to progress and certainly this is a next step in the evolution of a job that i really love and that's pretty much serving the people uh and this is a big decision uh did you chat with many before this how long was this process when did this first come to mind that yeah i'd like to make the jump first came to mind in 1977 I'm not not kidding, actually, because my mom was very, I'm an East End kid, as you know, and this is a homecoming for me, but she was very active with Shirley Collins' successful campaigns, with Sheila Copps, John Monroe, so she was one of those stumpers, she would answer phones, put up signs, do whatever uh, uh, was required, and I would watch that as a kid, and sometimes she'd drag my brother Greg and I along, and so always a a deep-rooted affiliation to the Liberal Party, and I was interested very early. It probably led me down the road of being a broadcaster first and then ultimately a counselor and now uh, going after this MPP prize for, for Hamilton East Stony Creek. So that's that's how far back it goes. But uh, certainly, I'd say the last few months, uh, not the last few weeks, as, as some may be thinking, but uh, the, the conversation sort of started unofficially with um, uh, some of my work volunteering for the hugely successful uh, Chad Collins campaign. And that was, you know, fall, late September. I, I was out there a lot with Chad and, and met a lot of his folks and all of them, of course, liberal folks and all of them very involved in the in the provincial uh, aspect of things as well. So about two, three months now, Scott. Uh, I was going to ask why the Liberal Party, but we certainly know the history of that now. Why the decision to make this decision, this jump at this point? Why not wait a couple of years? Why not a few years ago? Yeah, I, I, I'm more inclined to think, why not a few years ago? Like you mentioned, and you're right, 12 years, that's um, three terms at four years a term. Um, I think most would agree Ward 2 is not your average ward. It's a busy place. Uh, a lot has gone on. I'm proud of a, a lot of, of of things that have occurred, and obviously from an economic development perspective, you can see the cranes now. That was a big part of that first brochure, and then the second time I ran, and the third time I ran, it was all about maintaining that momentum, and even through the pandemic, certainly huge investments are being made, and that means jobs, and that means uh, culture shifts, and that means more restaurants, and, and, and galleries, and those sorts of things. So, uh, that takes a lot of work and, and it, and it takes a lot of devotion. You're, you're not doing a nine to five job. You're, you're at it all the time in Ward 2. And, and, you know, I did a lot. I, I, I feel like I've accomplished a lot and it's time for that next step. And there's certainly so much that I have done in the last 12 years that I believe will pay big dividends because, you know, we were creatures. We are creatures of the province. And so there's a lot of uh, tangibles that I've learned with respect to provincial politics, because, you know, they're players in everything we do, just about. 
So your thoughts on your time on Council, Jason, because we remember, and we've certainly talked about it lots uh, mm-hmm. over the years, dysfunction, one step forward, two steps mm-hmm. back, all of that. Is Council better off now? Your thoughts on when you started as year 12? Uh, no, and I appreciate the question. Uh, you know, I believe uh, where we were 12 years ago was actually the height of, of dysfunction. I, I think that, you know, there was a whole lot of um, uh, finger pointing. I think there were cliques on council. I remember going to the door. Are you going to be one of those people or are you going to try to get along? And my big thing was to, to, to just get along. So Bertina's first year or first term, four years, I think council, that's probably will go down in the annals of history as probably the best council in terms of everyone getting along, notwithstanding, uh, you know, uh, we all had our, our, our interactions, Bob included, and he'll be the first to tell you. But, you know, we, we raised the bar. We did a lot of negotiating, and we set the standard, and we were followed and copied on some some rather progressive issues by other cities. So that was pretty good. Uh, now it's been a tougher one, I will admit. This term, there has been some divisiveness, and I think that has something to do with something I'm I'm going to be talking a lot about in May at the Doors, which is sort of a polarization that's going on in politics. And I think you've talked about it too on your show and others have talked mm. about it. So, so people are just being pigeonholed into taking positions. And, you know, I think you even run a promo that talks about, you know, there's a, there's, there's perspectives on both sides and the polarization that's going on now, we're seeing it too, too, I think in the a municipal political arena, but also in the municipal political conversation and people have really, I believe gotten tired of that. And, and it, it demonstrates um, uh, um, that we do have issues, but it, you got to be able to work together to solve the issues because people are getting frustrated because not everybody wants to take a side, but they still want to be included. Uh, we've talked about this many times on the show, Jason, on how polarized the country has become. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's either this extreme or that extreme. How can you unite? How do you bring two sides together? And because it seems we're, we're, as you said, we're sick of the polarization. So anybody that runs on, hey, let's get together and agree to disagree uh, may move ahead in this. Well, I think the quick answer to that one is you vote for the Liberal Party. <laughs> the Ontario it's well i mean traditionally and the reason i think my mother wanted to be part of it way back in the day is because it is a non-divisive party at least it, it makes that attempt in, in historically and and for future you know we we have uh no, we, we've not a platform yet from our leader del duca but when you see already what you know he's he's sprinkling out there uh and in the coming days you'll have that platform but pay equity uh new provincial parks for people to enjoy handguns being banned not not all that too controversial right i think more universal ideas uh but but you know smart ideas and and i think he's a pretty smart guy that's another reason why i i I wanted to run i wanted to be associated with who i think is the smartest leader in the room anyway at this point in time but you you have the ability being in the middle central party uh, to be able to go to either side. I mean, you, you, you have that uh, opportunity because you're built around a non-divisive sort of uh, overall prevailing platform. And I think that that absolutely does help. Sorry, it's a campaign kind of answer, and I don't want to do that because the campaign's not officially on yet. But that that certainly is a start. And the other thing is to have that experience. I think we have a lot of good candidates, and I know that I'm one that, you know, I try real hard to get along. I've always done that. Have I always succeeded? No. I've had my run-ins, absolutely, on the council floor and even at a few community meetings. But the reality is it's always in my head that people have different opinions, and you get more done when you try to collaborate and you're successful at collaborating. Jason Farr with us, Councillor Ward 2 and uh, City of Hamilton, and now a candidate for the Ontario Liberal Party, Hamilton East, Stony Creek. More to come. Jason, good luck with all of this. Thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you so much, Scott. Joining us now uh, live from the First Ontario Centre, uh, watching, covering the, Bull, uh, the Bulldogs game tonight. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and covering the game, but also doing the show from down here. So we're doing very both. cool. Double, double duty today. So, you know, it's very cool because, again, you'll be talking about something very, very serious, like, you know, the situation in Ukraine, and all of a sudden, oh, he scored! All right, a Hamilton goal! Did that you know happen what? last as time? As, as long as you're not talking about the situation in Ukraine and some cannon goes off or something to celebrate <laughs> a goal, which, uh, 
you know, th- there was a story from years ago. This is, this is true. So there was a, I did a story one time about a house. If you remember the way Ivor Wynn used to be situated, because it, t- it was turned 90 degrees. Yeah, the other way, and yeah. There were houses all, that could look into the end zone. And there was a guy there, and I remember talking to them, because they had a great view of the field. They could sit in their upstairs and watch. Yeah. But he, had, he, was, he was, by his own admission, jumpy. And they used to, every time the Ticats scored a touchdown, they had those flash pots. Yeah. And, and so the few minutes that he like wouldn't be watching the game, he'd go down to get a beer or a coffee or whatever, and all of a sudden, bang, bang, bang! The dog takes off. He almost lost bladder control because it scared him so badly. But yes, it's, um, we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep the sound effects to a, an appropriate uh, combination today. Uh, very exciting game one. Uh, Peterborough Pete's in town. Seven o'clock, of course, the start. Uh, we've got tickets for game two on Monday coming up uh, tomorrow afternoon in the five o'clock hour. Is this the Bulldogs to lose? They're the favorites. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah yeah. You know, they Scott. They um, they. I think you and I were talking. They they have gone thirty five and four since the start of the new year. Wow. And so that means that for them to lose in these playoffs, some team has to come in and beat them as many times in two weeks as they've lost since January 1st. I mean, it, it, it can happen. It absolutely can happen. But, boy, that is a, that's a tall order. And this is, this is, a, you know, this is a really good team. It's the, it, it, this is the best regular season, at least as far as I can tell. Now, you know, I, can't, I haven't checked the 1920s and everything, but this is the best regular season by a Hamilton hockey team. And, and again, there may be minor league teams or junior B or junior C. I'm talking junior A or professional. This is the best regular season ever. I mean, this team is, is really stacked right now. And by and large healthy and tons of NHL prospects and all playing well. And you know what? They, they, I'd be shocked if they were not playing for a while this spring. Uh, and obviously a big year for them, uh, the outdoor game on the uh, heels yep. of, of the NHL game and such. Has this momentum helped them put butts in the seats? Well, um, playoffs are weird with the OHL because you, you don't have any season ticket uh, base yeah. for this. So it's entirely single-game tickets. So generally, it starts a little bit slowly, and then people start to latch on if they see the team is doing well now. It's going to be interesting to see if that happens again because unlike previous years, when you're the first place overall in the league team, and not just by a little bit, by a lot, you would think people already know you're going to do pretty well. So maybe there's some more interest in coming out earlier on. than some, Sometimes it's not till like the second or late second or third mm. round when you start to really get the momentum. We'll see. I, 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 would, I would hope, again, for a team like this, and I'm not selling tickets, and I, I mean, frankly, I don't care if people come or not. Um, but the now that's not the right say, attitude, Scott. No, but I'm I'm not on the sales staff. Is all <laughs> yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, uh, I, I would hope though for a team that's this good that people will show some interest because you want to know something. We've in this in this city, we've had a lot of teams, whether it's Thai Cats or Bulldogs or otherwise, who have not been all that good. And we whine and we gripe about how oh they stick the Thai Cats. Hmm. Don't forget, it was not that long ago the Thai Cats were yeah. atrocious. Mm-hmm. And so when you get a good team, like a really good, great team, we should appreciate it. All right, let's talk about, uh, by the way, 7 o'clock tonight, and don't forget yeah. Monday, April 25th, uh, Game 2 against the Peterborough Peets. All right, let's talk about the Raptors. Uh, kind of mm-hmm. flamed out last night. Uh, is this it? Can they come back with this? I mean, they're down three. No, they can't. They're done. Yeah. Uh, they're done, and like last night I tuned in a little bit late. Not way late in the game. I tuned in, I don't know, six minutes left in the second quarter, and they were up by 17. And I turned yeah. to my son, who was eating dinner behind me, and I said, you know, it is amazing. Considering how badly they got blasted in Philadelphia, it's amazing in the NBA how much of a difference home court makes. And no sooner did the word come out of my mouth than Philadelphia goes on this crazy run, and all of a sudden yeah. I tune in again in a bit, and the Raptors are tied. And then they lose on, you know, some unbelievable shots by... Remember, the guy who hit the big shot yesterday, Joel Embiid, yeah. was the guy in the picture when Kawhi Leonard hit the boing, 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 boing one yeah, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. Joel Embiid was the guy crying in that picture. He was a literally weeping in that picture when that shot, because he, he was the one who jumped to try and block Leonard's shot and didn't get there. And then four years later, is it four years, three years, whatever it is later, he's the guy hitting a long-range three-pointer in overtime with almost no time left to win the thing. I mean, it is, it's painful for Raptors fans, but boy, there's some poetry in there.
Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, live from First Ontario Centre, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, have fun tonight. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the two Wills for producing and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to deliver the last word. I just wanted to leave the last word and tell everybody have a great day. It's nice and sunny outside. And if you can play the song Shiny Happy People, that would be even better. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.